the ubiquity of these microbes is something that we have to contend with because they are everywhere. Once they breach our defenses, we need additional help. And that additional help is in the form of antibiotic or antiviral, depending on what that pathogen is. But all that antibiotic is creating resistance in the environment. And that's what comes back to us. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now. And I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. Why do you think we need antibiotics? Why do I think we need antibiotics? Because the world is such a dirty place. <laughs> I believe they used arsenic for syphilis in the days, you know, the old Roman times. Um, but, you know, we need antibiotics today to fight infectious diseases. With the widespread use of antibiotics currently and the fact that they're, you know, being used so frequently, they can morph and become more resistant. So you need more antibiotics to, you know, meet that demand. In our first season, we had a really interesting discussion with uh, Rick Brown on bacteria, different kinds of bacteria, how they they invaded different niches, both within the soil and then in the human body. And sometimes that resulted in kind of homeostasis of bacteria and sometimes pathogenesis. So in this session, we want to drill down a little bit more on pathogenesis and infectious disease more broadly. And because this is such a large topic, I in fact have two people with me today instead of just one. I have George Tavell, who's a lead infectious uh, uh, clinician. And I have also Manwa Tan, who is a hardcore biologist in the field, who has loads of expertise in uh, parasitology and host defense. So welcome, George, and welcome, Manwa. Thank you. Thank you. So Manwa, why haven't we eradicated every single pathogen out there? Well, I think there are many reasons why we have not. One of the, I think, the most profound one that we do not think as deeply about is that many of these infectious agents replicate very rapidly. And in the process of replication, they generate much diversity in their genomes. And so when we use an agent to kill these pathogens, um, some of these variants are able, that are able to survive, whether it be an antiviral or antibiotic, these stents will be able to survive and proliferate even in the presence of the drug. And so the speed in which they produce variants is much faster than we can produce drugs to treat them. And so they are always ahead of the curve. George, when we think about the, the most dangerous or communicable infectious disease right now facing you know, us as humanity, what are they? So, I mean, that's a very good question. There are still a, a broad number of diseases that are causing human morbidity and mortality. So we can think about global health issues like malaria and tuberculosis, and those are certainly still issues. But in other countries where those are no longer a problem, there are 
increasing problems with other organisms for the exact reason that Mangwa just mentioned, that we have organisms that we had antibiotics for years ago, but now um, have developed resistance to even our best drugs. So that's really creating a crisis across all of medicine, because I think what we need to remember is that antibiotics are an integral part of so much of what we do in medicine. So for example, um, cancer chemotherapy leads to immune suppression. Without good, effective antibiotics, we could not give the potent chemotherapy we do today for cancer. Routine surgeries, for example, if we didn't have antibiotics, the mortality would be incredibly high. Um, so all of these things are linked together. So um, you know, antibiotics, I think, are, are still you know, one of the main reasons why we have to keep infectious diseases on the forefront of our research efforts. Jane. Yes, Wellington. This is interesting having three scientists walk into a bar. One's in research like you and one is a clinician. How do researchers and clinicians actually work together? Well, it's really not the beginning of a joke. It's really the beginning of a mindful discussion around science. Um, you know, the discipline of science and biology or understanding biology is not linear. It's very iterative. And I think the beauty of staying very connected as a biologist myself with a clinician and a, a clinical researcher is keeping a communication going where we get into this um, scenario where what's being learned in the clinic is helping us establish new hypotheses and paradigms that we can test back in the preclinical setting in the laboratory and then feed that back and come up with better drugs or more targeted drugs or better understandings of disease and pathways. And I think the other aspect that's really important is that by thinking this way, uh, we often end up with different disciplines colliding. Um, and that's the case, for example, with cancer immunology, just understanding and observing what's going on in a tumour made us realise that there are immune cells in there and that we could go back and start to ask the question of what is an immune cell doing inside of a tumour. And of course the WHO has a list of infectious disease and the top three happen to be fairly gnarly bacteria, right? Yes, absolutely. And so the WHO in February this year actually announced that the top priority uh, infectious bacteria um, are all turns out to belong to the same group of organisms, even though they are very different. They are called gram-negative bacteria. And uh, the reason why they are so difficult and to treat is because unlike most other organisms, they have two walls. And what's even more important in terms of drug discovery is that the properties of the two walls are very different. So you can penetrate the first wall, but the same means by which you penetrate the first wall will be defeated by the second wall because the properties needed to penetrate the second wall is opposite of the properties needed to penetrate the first wall. We've talked a lot in these sessions around getting molecules across cell membranes and how cells communicate with each other by things passing in and out of membranes. Why have the bacteria developed to have this second layer, and why is it so impenetrable? Okay, um, so first I want to clarify, the, because I think we, we're using uh, two terms here that could be misunderstood as one. When in, in bacteriology, when we say the cell wall, that's the peptidoglycan, that is a, the structure that gives shape to the bacteria. 
and then there is the membrane, uh, which I use the illustration of the wall, right? So gram-negative, therefore, have two different membranes uh, that is surrounding the, 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 the peptidoglycan, the, the cell wall. The membranes are actually important for bacteria because, say for example, E. coli, they live in our gut. And the outer membrane, which is decorated by lipopolysaccharide, is actually there to protect them from bile salt that we produce. So they have this cell, wall, a cell membrane as a mechanism to survive in a specific niche. And that, that then has been adopted by many different organisms to then survive in different environment as well. And so the, the additional uh, membrane that is present in gram-negative is really to allow them to have versatility and to be able to survive in, in very different environments. That part of that survivability is actually compensated in the gram-positive by having just a very thick peptidoglycan. So they, they're just two different means of solving the same problem that's being done by gram-negative and gram-positive. So, so could you name some of these gram-negative bacteria out there? So, um, so there, there are a, a number of different gram-negative bacteria. Um, as I think Manwa has already mentioned, you know, the family called Enterobacteriaceae is the one um, that really causes much of the morbidity and mortality in humans. And it encompasses, you know, a number of organisms. You know, some of the primary ones that we see are E. coli, um, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella. Um, these are all organisms that can infect various parts of the body. You know, typically they um, infect the lungs, causing pneumonia. They can infect the urinary tract. They can infect the abdominal cavity. They can infect wounds. But um, they, then they can go into the blood and cause, you know, very severe disseminated infection. But in all these cases, because of, our, of the challenges with treating them, um, they can all cause, you know, severe outcomes, including death. Um, is one of the reasons, George, that there's so much difficulty in targeting gram-negative because of the structure or because of um, antibiotic resistance that's already developed? Well, um, the gram-negatives are known for having a variety of different mechanisms that they create resistance. Um, one of them, um, for example, is they have active mechanisms to actually export or pump antibiotics out of that space that Monwad was describing. So it has these, these, it has evolved these mechanisms to resist whatever you want to put into that space. Jane, the resistance in bacteria sounds awfully similar to how you've talked about, uh, and we've talked about on the show, the resistance of tumor cells to evade, um, you know, what you're trying to put in the body to, to, to kill them off. Is that a fair comparison? There is something about this comparison um, that is fair and parallel. You have bacteria that um, want to survive and they're going to mutate so they survive in any niche they can. Um, and so that is um, where you can develop multi-drug resistance and the bacteria can just try and survive around that. In a similar way, uh, a tumour is mutating as well and it's mutating and it's growing in, a, in an environment in which it wants to make sure that it keeps growing. I think beyond that, the similarities differ because a bacteria actually is a, an organism and it's trying to 
grow in these colonies and maintain its existence. The tumor cell is just a cell that's growing out of control. And then the idea of getting a drug in, it's got to get through one wall and then it's got to reach a whole different membrane. It's got to pass through right. different acidic concentrations or with different acidity. And so in order for the molecule to get through the first membrane, uh, it needs to have uh, generally a water-soluble property because there are openings on the membrane that uh, uh, drugs can go through. But those molecules that are water-soluble will not be able to penetrate the second membrane. And so because if, it's a lipid layer. Because it's a lipid layer, lipid bilayer, which is very similar to then the same lipid layer that make us make up our cells, right? So if the drug is requires to pass through this two membrane before it gets to its target, you can imagine now the the, the different properties that it has to uh, be present in a single molecule, and that's some of the challenges that makes making new antibiotics such a difficult one to a point where the last new class of gram-negative active antibiotic that has been uh, approved for medical use was approved in 1968. That's a long time of scientific quiescence. It is, and one of the antibiotics that we're being forced to use now, because it's an antibiotic of last resort, because some of the organisms now have become resistant to our first, second, and third lines, is a drug that was introduced in 1959, actually, and we stopped using in the 1970s because of toxicities, but now we've had to revisit it because it's the only thing that's left. Drug of last resort at that's the moment. That's right. Where do we have to go from here when we think about targeting the resistance in, in the bug? And then one would also imagine how we understand how those bugs interact with the host that they're living in, i.e. us, and how we may think about understanding that, that and manipulating the immune response or something else, some other part of the microenvironment. Yeah, I think there are many different strategies that one could think of. Uh, I think, so one, one thing about the, the interaction with, with the host is that as, as George said, some of them are actually living in us and uh, require, therefore, nutrient from us. In fact, that's why they infect us, is to get nutrient out of us. One nutrient that they absolutely need, but is very, very limiting in our blood, is iron. And so bacteria needs iron in, in, in a form that's soluble, and so they produce molecules called siderophore that they secrete to trap this iron. And now this is now a complex molecule. How can a complex molecule get through the two membranes that I've just talked about? Right? Which they need for survival. They need for survival. And so they now have uh, receptors that binds to this complex and then transport them across the two membranes so that iron can then be present in the cytoplasm to nourish the bacteria. So one approach then that we can overcome uh, uh, resistance and kill this bacteria is, you know, we think about Trojan horse, right? How you can exploit this siderophore as a way to carry, instead of iron, or in addition to iron, an antibiotic. So use it as a transport. Exactly. And so that is one means by which we can 
understand what the bacteria requires in the context of the host and now exploit that knowledge to uh, to develop new ways of targeting this bacteria. I mean, how do you think about this, right? Scientifically, I know, Manoir, you have worked in the field of parasitology for a very long time. Um, and in your earlier days, you were actually looking at how bacteria are infecting worms. And, you know, we're kind of talking around humans right now, but what are the parallels and how do you think about experimentally setting up systems to understand that host pathogen interaction and then translating that to, you know, complex human. Right. I think that in the end, pathogens really simply think of its host as a food source. And from that standpoint, we are not that different from a worm, a, 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 a worm right? Because it is just a particular nutrient source that, that we are. So no offense there. Uh, I'm speaking for myself as well, uh, since I'm also human. Uh, and, um, and so I think that, so that's one. Second, we now learned from our studies of many different organisms and using different model organis uh, uh, organisms to model the human physiology and disease that Many organisms, from worm to human, share important physiology and important fundamental mechanisms. And that's what pathogens do, whether it be virus or parasite or bacteria, they target very fundamental mechanisms in, this, in, in us as well as in the worm. And so by using some of these model organisms, so to speak, uh, to uh, allow us to do experiments, we can now f better understand how they can exploit us human beings. So some of these fundamental mechanisms will include obviously the transport of nutrients so that they can grow, the replication. As well as, as, well as some of the toxins that they produce, right? So many of the toxins that they produce to break our membrane in order to release nutrient those membranes are very similar in its property, whether it be a membrane of a human cell or a membrane of a C. elegans or worm cell. And so, so now you can use basically some other organisms for which we can get many more cells to understand how these toxins work. Jane, this is pretty cool. It sounds like we're using um, the, the way that bacteria gets inside of us against it. Is this the easiest thing to do or is this actually a very difficult concept? I think it really depends on the science that you're looking at. But I think we're learning that often the most elegant solutions provide the most powerful um, understanding of disease and, and potentially therapeutic targets. Um, so taking a simple pathway and exploiting that is um, a great way of actually harnessing the biology to help you get the drug to do what it wants. Another example of this, of course, is the immune system. You know, actually we know that the immune system wants to try and fight tumor cells, um, but it gets stuck. So instead of trying to provide a plethora of different drugs, we can just trick the immune system into doing its job. So exploiting known biologies is a very, very powerful technique. Then beyond gram-negative, um, Back to the bigger picture of infectious disease, obviously viruses are a huge problem. Um, 
you know, recently we've hear stories of things like the Ebola virus outbreak. Um, clearly, there's parts of HIV that we don't have under control, whereas there's you know, hope out there that we have a cure for hepatitis C virus. So when you think about viruses and infectious disease, uh, George, what are your thoughts about kind of the unmet need and from a clinical perspective? Right. Historically, we have not been able to combat viruses as well as we have bacteria, although, as we've already heard, you know, we're getting behind the eight ball on bacteria as well. But nonetheless, I still think we're learning a lot about how to control viruses. But, you know, I find it inspiring that in my lifetime, there have been two viruses that have, or viral infections that have completely been transformed. I initially started my career thinking, I want to go into a therapeutic area where I can cure patients, because that's when I thought, I was working in a parasitology lab, and I thought, you know, we, we know how to diagnose, we know how to treat, and I want to do this for patients. Well, then a few you know, years later came along HIV, and that really was all of infectious diseases, and we knew what we didn't know as far as how to treat and how to cure. Now that's been transformed into a chronic illness. Um, we still need a cure, and that's still um, a goal that we're shooting for, but still the disease has been transformed from a uniformly um, fatal disease into a chronic disease, which is amazing. And then second is hepatitis C. That is something that uh, we thought was going to be very challenging because hepatitis B remains a challenge. We can control it, we can't cure it. But now we know with a relatively short course of drugs, we can cure hepatitis C. So there are two examples of, that's been completely transformed. Now, we have other things that we might think are more routine, like influenza, but influenza still causes multiple deaths annually. And you know, when we get a pandemic, like we did during the Spanish flu, where 5% of Earth's population died, that's still something that could happen. So I still think there are a lot of challenges out there for us to meet. Um, but you know, I think with research and for, with new drug development, we'll get there. But cure. Do you both believe that we will be able to cure many of these diseases? And the hope is yes. But I also get back to the analogy that bacteria, viruses like to find a niche. So once we clear a niche out of one infection, will another one just come in and invade? That's a great question. Um, certain diseases are going to be very challenging. So for example, um, many bacteria also live in animals. Therefore, in fact, a lot of resistance develops in animals. So, um, you know, you might not realize how much antibiotics is used in agriculture, for example. So every year, 12,000 tons of the antibiotic I just mentioned we use in humans is used in livestock to make them grow bigger. But all that antibiotic is creating resistance in the environment, and that's what comes back to us. So then as far as being able to eradicate resistance, it's very challenging because we're creating it on multiple different levels. So it's gonna take a broader control effort than just uh, what we do in the clinic. It's gonna take what also we do with animals and agriculture and whatnot. So if it's what we call a zoonotic disease that also has a component in animals, it's gonna be very challenging. So I think for cure, it depends on how we define cure. If cure is specific for that particular individual who is infected, in fact, many antibiotics has already been able to achieve cure. If a patient is diagnosed of having pseudomonas, 
and that particular bacteria is susceptible to a particular antibiotic, if that patient is given that antibiotic, in a day or two, he or she will be up dancing the word that Rick used before, right? Because the antibiotic worked and it cured that particular individual of that infection. But for other classes of bacteria that now hide in certain, you know, the word that you use is niches. They are now in privileged environment. Viruses do that too. They incorporate themselves into our DNA or into our RNA, and they become part of us. In those cases, they are, they, it's very difficult to cure them. Uh, in other words, it's very difficult to completely eliminate all of them from our human body. But if you think about cure as curing the human civilization of that particular bacteria or that particular virus, I think to, to George's point, that's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, because of their presence outside of human population, right, in, 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 in uh, livestock. But some, some pathogens have been eradicated or almost eradicated, like smallpox. That's right. And the difference there, and I'm glad that you brought up that as an example, in the case of smallpox, that particular virus can only infect human. And therefore, if we can eliminate that virus or prevent that virus from subsequently infected human, it has nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. Whereas a bacteria that can survive not only in human, but also in a worm, also in livestock, even if we have eliminated it from human population, it can still hide in uh, livestock and can then be passed back to the human uh, population. Yeah, so it's actually quite unusual for um, an organism just to use humans as a host. That's why smallpox was relatively unique that we were able to use something called ring vaccination where you found an individual who had smallpox and you make sure everyone is vaccinated around them and you can contain it. Um, we would love to be able to use that technique on a variety of different pathogens, but that's just not the case because, as you just mentioned, they have other reservoirs in, in other animals. So resistance remains the highest hurdle. And the ubiquity. They are everywhere, right? And so I think we talk about livestock, but I want to go back to the example of Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas not only survive in other organisms, it survives in the soil. It actually survives on plants. In fact, in burn units, the hospitals actually do not want us to bring plants in to cheer up our patients. Uh, because pseudomonas could be present in those flowers and that we are in fact bringing in a pathogen that could actually... Into uh, a sterile hospital Exactly. And so, so, you know, the ubiquity of these microbes is something that we have to contend with because they are everywhere. They can survive in almost anywhere. And um, it's a matter of whether they can breach our defenses, which is what our immune system does for us. But once they breach our defenses, we need additional help. And that additional help is in the form of antibiotic or antiviral, depending on what that pathogen is. I want to switch gear a little bit. Um, I have both of you here that are approaching this idea of host pathogen, pathogenesis, infectious disease, um, with the same 
passion and focus, but from very different perspectives. And I'd like to just ask you how you both kind of, how your journey started. Manuel. I, as a kid, I love just going into the forest, studying butterflies, but also bring caterpillars back and, and uh, breed them. And oftentimes, my caterpillars would die. And I'll be sad. But I think what, what triggered me was, was that, why do they die? And, and, and oftentimes, I realized that they die because, not because I didn't feed them, because I fed them really well. I brought them all the leaves back. But it's because they got infected. And so I realized then that not only caterpillars get infected, we get infected too. And so the caterpillars that die make me sad, but infected loved ones who get, um, you know, suffer morbidity and mortality, that is even worse. And I think we have an opportunity with the advancement of science now to meet this uh, very high unmet need. And I think that was what kind of drive me towards wanting to study more about how they infect people and what can we do um, in addition to the immune system to help us cope with infection. And George, I think you actually spent some of your early days working at the CDC. That's correct. So um, I grew up in Atlanta and while I was in high school, I had the opportunity to work at the CDC, but just running their copying machine, basically. But I eventually advanced, or was promoted, if you will, to work in their parasitology training unit. So I got to see how they prepared their slides for just the widest variety of parasitic diseases that I would not have been exposed to otherwise in, in school or otherwise. And um, that really sparked my interest in learning about the bugs and just the variety of organisms and the variety of life cycles. Um, and the connection to also the, 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 the tropical element of this and just the, how, um, how, how different some of the organisms were than um, others that I had learned about in school, whether bacteria or viruses or whatnot. Um, that is when I naively thought I was going to go into infectious diseases because I could cure things, because I knew parasites broadly could be treated as well as many bacteria because of antibiotics. But then when um, I went to medical school is, was basically the, the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And um, that is when, of course, um, I came out of my naive shell and realized that um, that there were still challenges that were out there. But not only that, that HIV was the most pressing public health concern in my lifetime then. Um, and so that's when I kind of doubled down in my commitment to do infectious diseases. I also began my career as a parasitologist. Even though I'm, I'm now an immunologist, I, I began my PhD looking at, at worm infections and so how the host immune response would try and wall off a worm wall off the eggs it was producing in the body and try and eliminate it, and how the worm would trick the immune system to actually encourage it to protect the eggs so that they wouldn't get destroyed by, for example, acid in the gut or something. So um, the symbiotic relationship between the parasite and the host, I think, has also allowed these pathogens to coexist for a, for a long time. And, and I think I agree that it, it'll getting rid of some of these things Will be, will be a challenge, but an exciting one. And with that in mind, 
Where do you think we will be five or ten years out from now? And, 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 and as scientists and clinical scientists, what would you like to see or what do you think will need to happen? Or what experiments should young budding scientists out there go and participate in? In the golden years, in the 70s, 60s, we were discovering antibiotic. Um, and we were able to make a lot of antibiotics that work really well. And I think we rest on our laurels for a while. We thought that we have won the war against pathogens. And so we have, re, we have changed our focus from tackling the pathogen to other fields, which rightfully, I think, you know, there are so many different fields that we should uh, focus on. We have lost sight of the fact that these pathogens are going to evolve, they are going to find ways to overcome many of the drugs that we found and they will be resistant to it. I think we are at this stage now. I think we can rediscover that golden age. And one of the major things that I think give me courage and encouragement is that we discovered many of the antibiotic when we were only able to sample about 1% of what nature has, can provide in terms of molecules. There is now our ability to sample the 99% of the, the molecules that the world can through, through our way of, of sequencing and through our genomic approaches. I think that is the new frontier in which we can explore and I think that plus uh, our advancement in uh, bioinformatics would allow us to capture many of the secrets that nature has and apply this to not only infectious disease but also other uh, diseases as well but I think we are actually at a very exciting place. And so being able to intersect the genetics, <clears throat> genetics of the parasite and then um, the vast libraries or um, molecules that are available to us to screen so that we can look for specific molecules to, to target specific functions. Exactly. Without the need to culture those organisms that are actually making those molecules. I think that is where uh, the, the next uh, wave of new classes of molecules could come. I think that plus bringing together those new classes of molecule with our new understanding of the biology of these organisms themselves, right? I think, you know, I give an example of how we exploited uh, the way that iron is being imported into the cell. I think we can exploit many of these mechanisms by which bacteria bring things inside as a means of bringing drug into them. George? So I think from a clinical point of view, um, we, of course, await all of the discoveries from Manwa and people like him, which are going to be, be key. Um, we haven't touched so much on diagnostics yet, but I do think that's key for just to mention, just because as a clinician currently, um, you know, it takes a day to grow the organism, as Manwa was referring to, then another day to see what species you have, then another day to see what resistance you have in that organism. So I think we can envision, and even currently, um, there are, are, are more and more technologies to be able to condense that down to just a few hours. If doctors don't know what they're treating, they can't treat correctly and precisely. Or they treat broadly just to make sure they capture everything. Oh, and, and keys, 
to treat specifically. Exactly, and which is, takes me to my second point, which right now um, our therapies are, are at least initially very broad spectrum. So in many cases, we cover both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms with our antibacterial coverage that we give a patient, just because, again, we don't know, we're not sure what we're treating. So we want to make sure that that patient is being covered for what they need to be. But we can see a future where we're much more precise, because right now, we not only eradicate the bad bugs, but we eradicate so many of the other bugs that are in our organisms that make us up, um, that help us live, um, that, that it perturbs that balance. So we can see, and not only does it perturb the balance, but it also produces resistance in those organisms. So we can see a situation where we're targeting specifically pathogens that have been diagnosed so that we don't foster resistance, we don't perturb um, our systems in the microbiome, um, which is a much more um, again, precise way to practice medicine and to treat infectious diseases. So what would that diagnostic look like to you? Well, as a clinician, it would be fantastic if I were in my office, I could take a swab, swab an infection or the throat or take a sputum culture or a urine culture, stick that swab in a machine, and in five minutes I am told not only if it's gram-positive or gram-negative, not only if it's E. coli or another organism, but what specific resistance mutations it may have so that I can give a very precise drug to, uh, to attack just that organism that they have. Manoir, it's over to you to try and work that out. I alone will not be able to uh, address that question, but I am uh, very confident that I think with the scientific community at large, uh, that, is, that is our aspirational goal. That is precisely what we are working towards, and um, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Manoir, George, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a delight to talk with you, and um, good luck in the search for a cure. Thank you. Clearly, bacterial and viral infections are still an unmet medical need. And I think the power of having the researcher and the clinician, as you've heard in the podcast today, really show us and shine the light on the fact that understanding the bacteria or the viruses, understanding the resistance to that, exploiting pathways that can be targeted for therapy, and then getting that into um, patients in a diagnostically mindful way is really a place that we're heading and it relies on the collaboration and intersection of different kinds of scientists, those at the bench and those in the clinic. So in the next episode, apoptosis, we will be answering the question of why cells die and why they need to die to keep us alive. So stay tuned. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. And now for me, it's back to the lab.